all the moms in the room a very happy Mother's Day. It's uh, pretty exciting. Uh, I do apologize, though, for the weather. I was joking before the 8 o'clock service with some people who were, who were here for that one that I'm going to be nicknamed Pastor Precipitation. Because if you remember the last time that I preached, we had that torrential snow, the blizzard that uh, we could have canceled church for. Uh, so anytime that you hear my dad is out of town and that I'm preaching, just bundle up. Bring your, bring your uh, coats, bring your swimming trunks, bring your boots, bring your umbrellas, bring everything because you never know what's going to happen. But again, happy Mother's Day to, to all you moms out there. Uh, so glad, so glad that you are here with us this morning. We have some announcements for you as we get started. A couple really important ones regarding Quest. Quest is our uh, day camp that we're having at the, the last week of June that leads into the first couple days of July. We have registration open. So make sure that you are not only registering yourself if you are a kindergarten through fifth grader, uh, but also invite a friend. Talk to the neighbors, talk to the cousins, talk to whoever you want, uh, whoever you want to. Let's, let's fill up that registration sheet. Now, we can add more campers if we have more small group leaders. So one of the, the big needs this year is for that camp small group leader. And I know we addressed it last week, uh, but I want to hit it again today. It is such an incredible time that you get to spend with those kids. The, the impact, lifelong, that you can have, uh, the relationships that you can build by being a part of that small group, rather than being one of the actors or you know behind-the-scenes people, uh, is is incredible. Not that those other people don't have an impact, but uh, that small group leader is is influential. And so we really encourage you if you haven't signed up for a role with Quest and you have that time that week, uh, Monday through Friday, to to offer to our kids. We would highly encourage you to do that because it is a really really cool uh, and unique role. We are looking for Green Lake supplies, and so we closed registration. We have a ton of people going, uh, really, really excited. We have 112 people total. Now, that includes adults, but I am just, I'm so fired up. It's going to be just an amazing week up at Green Lake, uh, helping out the conference center, keep up with their needs, uh, but you can help us with our needs. So, as we said last week, we are looking for donations of Honey Nut Cheerios, Small, kind bars, not the full size, but the, the small ones, just the, the quick ones that we can help. You know, when a kid says, I'm hungry, I'm starving, I can't work because we're just going to give him one of those kind bars. And then we are also looking for, um, looking for Capri Sun style pouches. So I know Kool-Aid makes one. There's probably some other goofy stuff. Uh, but we're looking for the, the pouches rather than the boxes because they're easier to transport and pack uh, in coolers and things like that. So if you wouldn't mind helping us out with that, you can bring the Cheerios and the, the Kind Bars and the pouches to the Info Hub, uh, the desk right outside by the TV, anytime leading up to Memorial Day Sunday. So as long as it's here before we leave for camp, that's a good thing. You bring it on the day that we leave, uh, well, it might not make it. So if, if you get it to us by then, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And finally cannot uh, exploit the weather enough. Today, today, islands are on sale. Uh, because of the weather, because they are so messy, we figure we'll just give them away for free. If you would like to take care of an island for the summer, we had a few people sign up and, and t stake their claim in the Southfield parking lot. 
but there are still several islands available to you. And no, this is no fire fest. This is a real island. You get your own. Uh, we just ask that, that you keep it weeded. Uh, you don't need to do anything other than just maintain it. So we've had people in the past just um, pull some weeds before church or after church or spend time maybe before a small group or come over. I know uh, the Smith family had an island last year, and they'd come over and the kids would be on the bikes and rollerblades and whatever while they were picking. Uh, so definitely a, a cool opportunity to own your own island. Go ahead and sign up for that on the website or um, through the links, or you can talk to the Info Hub today. Again, we want to thank you for uh, your continued generosity in giving. You can give online. I, in fact, gave through the app today, so the Church Center app. Search for Southfield, get it all registered, um, and you can hook your bank account up to it. It has made the process so much easier. I don't have to keep rebuying checks because this was the only place that I was writing checks to these days. Uh, so it's a really awesome process. We appreciate you doing that. If you haven't made that switch, that's totally fine. We have the box on the wall as you leave the room. If, and for the record, if you are uh, bringing back registrations or anything that... Um, that the church has been asking for, like I know we have Green Lake waivers, you can drop those not in the offering box, but in the, uh, the box on the inside wall. So it's, there's black box in here for offering, and then on the inside wall, there's a, a grayish, uh, it's not gray, it's a weird color. It matches the walls nicely, okay? Uh, but there's a box on the, the breezeway wall there uh, that you can drop all that in so that we have that. And so you don't hand them to me, and then I lose them, and then you have to fill out another one. Okay? <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and get started with our message today. So Avery, you can flip over. Today, my parents are in a hotel. Uh, they're somewhere between Colorado and Texas, I think. I think they left Colorado yesterday. But my brother is moving away from Colorado Springs, and he's moving to Abilene, Texas. He got a job at a hospital down there. So my parents are out helping him make that big transition um, I, and I know it was, it was kind of sad for me because tonight, Revive, one of the things that I didn't mention in the announcements there was that Revive has our mom's night. So from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight, all the high school moms, you guys are invited. We're going to have a ton of games. And if high schoolers, if your mom can't come, still come. We want you here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but my mom was going to come to that. Originally, she was literally begging from the front row please, please let me come, and then she ditched me. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, okay? Uh, but since she's not here, I figured that I, I had to make sure that she was still known, like she, that her presence was still felt. So I decided, uh, because, again, my dad made a terrible decision and said, here's the reins, kid. Talk about whatever you want. Uh, instead of sticking with our series, I decided to go with something that my mom has taught me from the time that I was about this tall, from the, from the time that I remember her voice, like for the first time, I remember her saying one line in particular, great people do hard things. Great people do hard things. Every time that I wanted to quit something, she'd say no, because great people do hard things. Every time that I was scared or afraid or didn't want to do something because, well, I might get hurt or I might lose or I might... She said, nope, get your butt out there because great people do hard things. So we're going to look at what this statement means. Um, to get us started today, some of you may not know me too well, and I think to get to know somebody 
it's, it's nice to find out their interests. Like, yeah, oh, we have shared interests in terrible Chicago sports. That's nice. That's surface level. When you start to dig beneath the surface, you start to learn what people don't like. So I'm going to share with you my three top pet peeves. Unfortunately, they're all people. Okay? <clears throat> the number one pet peeve in my list is people who give backhanded comments. Oh, that's a nice haircut you got. Um, it's better than the last one. Or, oh, those shoes, those, are, those look really cool. They were even cooler in, in 1995, but they're still cool today. Um, yeah, people who give backhanded comments, I'm just like, why? Why do you have to be so rude? Pet peeve number two. When you're sitting at, at an intersection and the light is green and you're waiting to turn left and the person, the kind, gentle, loving human in front of you driving their vehicle decides, I'm not going to pull out into the intersection. I'm going to wait at this line until the light turns red, and then I'll go when the arrow says I can go. That drives me nuts. I'm like, we could have gotten six people through here if it were... F yep, I, I'm trying to calm down in the car, still. But I think the top pet peeve in my book, the top pet peeve is people who type with one finger. I don't mean hunt and peck. I don't mean hunt and peck. I mean one finger. I went to uh, Allsip Nursery yesterday. See, my dog has created this path that he likes to run, and every time that he stops, because he's very agile, so every time he stops and turns to run the other way, he has just torn up two patches, and every time I try and seed it, it just doesn't work. So I'm like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to get some sod and get this laid out. I'm a part of the rewards club. It takes nothing other than just signing up, um, so I'm not earning anything for this. Uh, you, there's no like member benefits or anything like that, but uh, as they were asking for my information yesterday, the, the kind person that was helping me uh, had to type out my whole name and my phone number. And I watched as this person went. Did you say B or P, first name or last name? I don't know what you're asking. It was exhausting. Watching people do that, I just, I'm like, hey, you know what? I, I actually know how like, computers and stuff work. If you might, like, could I just type that for you and we'll get this all done? My, I think this pet peeve started for me back when I was in college. Because, uh, you know, like, it was my sophomore year of college, and the, during the summer, I actually had a job at State Farm corporate offices in Bloomington. I know, sounds impressive. It wasn't, because I was on the groundskeeping team there. And one of the guys on the groundskeeping team was in his 70s. He was a retiree. He told me that he got that job, that he just mowed lawns because one of two things. Either he'd spend all of his money golfing, or if he was home uh, for the entire day, that his wife would use those golf clubs to take care of him. So he had to get out of the house at least for a couple hours in the day to give her her space, and, and he could mow the lawns, and he liked doing that. Now, I did not have a smartphone at the time, uh, but I had like gotten accustomed to seeing them. This man bought the brand new iPhone 3G. He actually told me that his son bought it for him, and he was still trying to figure it out. And so one day he called me over. We were on a break, and he called me over. He said, Brian, my grandson says that he's, he's messaging me, but I can't find anything. This new phone is driving me nuts. Uh, like, I can't figure out why, like, where the messages are. He's like, well, I don't have one, but I'll try and figure it out for you. And I knew, like, you had to go to messages, but that's besides the point. 
So I said, why don't you show me what you've been doing? Where are you looking for these messages? Like, what kind of messages is he sending you? He's like, what kind? This right here. And he clicked the email, the email button. So he's going to check his email, and immediately I'm like, oh, no. Because <laughs> uh, one, his grandson wasn't emailing him. Uh, and two, he hadn't yet set up his email. So I actually set up his email for him. And then I went over and I said, actually, uh, th- this is where your, your grandson's been messaging you. There are 70 text messages, and they're all right here. Uh, he's like, do I have to read them all now? I was like, no, that's the great thing. They stay there forever. Forever? This is amazing. So we had a, a nice uh, conversation about technology. Before he told me, I'm never going to use that texting thing. I'm just going to call him every time he texts. So, I could not believe that someone who was, you know, we were all coming of age at the same time. If you were alive and of age in the 2000s, like, you heard of texting. You may not know green bubbles and blue bubbles and, like, all the, you know, like, different apps. And, but message, text messaging, like, that's, that's, like, one of the three things that those phones no doubt can do. And he wasn't using it to the maximum capacity. He was not using it as Steve Jobs intended. You can call, you can text, you can have all these other apps. He literally only had two things, email, phone, or I said three things, email, phone, text, and he still couldn't even figure that out. It drove me nuts. It drove me nuts. The sad thing is, when you think about it, uh, we're kind of like that. We're kind of like that. God calls us for so much more than what we could ever know or expect out of ourselves, and yet... We're kind of like Marty with the iPhone 3, not knowing that a text message is sent from phone to phone, not through the internet world of email. We're too content with trivial things when we were created for a greater purpose. We were created by God to do great things. Proof of that, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the great things that he planned for us long ago. That word masterpiece uh, in the ESV is craftsmanship and and that whole idea, craftsmanship, masterpiece, it all comes from the the Greek word poema. Poema meaning poem. Uh, So when you think of a masterpiece, I, I don't like... I don't read for fun very often, uh, but I remember taking a a creative writing class in high school where we studied poems, and it bored me to tears. But I learned a lot, and I learned that poems are not easy to write. They're not. It depends on the structure. It depends on the message. It depends on uh, so many things. Poems take time and effort to write. So when you think of God calling us his poem, his masterpiece— You can think of God, the brushstroke, literally delicately thinking, planning, taking time on you. We are his masterpiece. God is the creator of all things, and nothing would exist without God. Um, Psalm 19.1, yes, it should be 19.1, not 10. But the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies d- display his craftsmanship. They display his masterpiece. So what does, that, what does that mean? Does that mean that we are like the skies? Well, no. We're about to go to Green Lake, uh, about a month away. And when we get up there, one of my favorite things to do is to take kids outside and say, just look up. Just look up at night, not during the day. Uh, but at night, look up. Because when they do, some of them legitimately have never seen this. They've never seen 
a sky full of stars. And I remember one time a kid thinking that those were all planes. And I had to explain to him that, no, those are stars. Oh, I learned about stars. Yeah, these are them. Um, it's unbelievable seeing all the stars. It's overwhelming. It's breathtaking. And yet as awe-inspiring and wonderful as the stars at Green Lake are, that masterpiece is nothing in comparison to what God has made us. He declares that we are his work of art, that we are his masterpiece, that we are his poema, that we are, we are it. Everyone here looking at me right now, uh, or at the screen, or at your phone, I, I, I get it. Like, you might think, like, masterpiece, really? Let me prove it through eyeballs. I did a deep dive on eyes this week, because I think I'm going to need to wear my glasses more regularly because um, the doctor keeps calling me and telling me, hey, buddy, you can't see. Let's get it fixed. Um, but so I, I did a deep dive on eyeballs. I was like, why do these things have to work the way that they do? And then I like, spent way too much time. But here's how they work, okay? The eye passes information first. I mean, it's an incredible amount of data. First through the cornea, which that's the thing you can scratch, and it hurts really, really bad. I know. I did it once. Okay, so it passes through the cornea, and goes through a focusing lens where the image strikes onto the retina. The retina fires off 125 million nerve endings simultaneously. This is processed then by millions of microswitches funneled down the optic nerve, which contains up to a million separate insulated fires or fibers, so there's no like short-circuiting, essentially. And when the information reaches your brain, it's only taken a millisecond. You want to say that you're not a masterpiece? Just remember your eyeballs and how they work. It's unbelievable. Do a deep dive. It's terrifying. <laughs> so trees and mountains and oceans, they're all really cool. They're pretty. They're wonderful. They're awe-inspiring. They're breathtaking. But they aren't as great as you and me. That's how we were created. We were created to be great. We were created far greater than anything ever. Genesis 127, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are the only thing that has the image of God stamped on us. Being in the image of God means that you and I have more inherent value than anything that's ever been made. He says that we are the only thing worthy of bearing that image. So, let me pause and just make this very clear. Whether you believe it or not, yet, you have value. You have worth. And you have more value and worth than any one person or any one thing or job can assign you here on earth. God gives you incredible value. You matter to him. You are his masterpiece. You are his poema. You and I are his masterpiece for two reasons. First, because we are created in the image of God, but also because of what Jesus did for us. Okay? It's important. God created us in his image. We were supposed to be perfect, and we screwed it up because we're human. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 starts really dark. It tells us about how badly we mess things up, uh, and you can think of it like a mirror. Okay? So we're a mirror. We're supposed to reflect the image of God, and it's like we just, at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, it's like we were a bunch of kids staring at the mirror with handfuls of mud. And we're like, can I throw it yet? Can I throw it yet? Can I throw it yet? And then we just launch it at the mirror. 
it gets all messy, we break it, it shatters into a million pieces. Something needed to be done. In, in verse 4, the chapter skyrockets towards heaven, changes its view. It shows us that as much as we have sinned and as much as we have screwed it up, God, in spite of that sin, rescued us so that we could be made new in him, for him, for this new life that he has planned for us. He takes our broken, dirty mirrors and he puts it all back together piece by piece so that we can reflect him. As he's putting those mirror pieces back in, his reflection is there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 Say, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. God put the pieces back together. God offered us a chance to fix the mirror, not us. And let me tell you, it's because it, that, that value that we, that we have, it's all because Jesus died for us. Now, to this point in the service, you might be thinking, what the heck, where are we going with this? Great people do hard things. Like, all you've done is give me a bunch of compliments. A compliment is something that I uh, receive often. You see, my mom is very, very good at saying, great job, oh, you're so wonderful, oh, no one in the world could have done it better. And I roll my eyes at compliments all the time. I'm like, mom, I, I was the kind of kid that I did better with criticism. Because you can learn from criticism. What am I going to learn from a compliment? Okay? Um, but here's the thing. I've learned that even when she does give me those compliments, that's how she sees me. She sees me as having done something good, having done something positive, having done something worthy of complimenting or complimenting. God does the same. God wants to compliment us. So instead of rolling your eyes and saying, yeah, yeah, we're a masterpiece, we're created for great things, whatever, we have to take that and actually believe it. So what do we have to do with it? We have to first believe it. And I mean it, really, believe it. Yes, you are a masterpiece. No matter how broken you think you are, God designed you. Don't take that glory from him. Don't take that uh, away from him by saying, no, 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 not me. Other people, maybe, but not me. Don't take that compliment away from God. The first part of the passage declares that we are his, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's a statement about you, not a suggestion. Not a suggestion at all. I think for many of us, that we really do struggle to believe that we are a masterpiece because we've done so many things in our lives that, that other people would tell us we're unworthy or other people would tell us we're not good enough or that, that we can never attain a certain level of worth or value. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that at all. I want to, uh, I don't want to call out anybody, but uh, I've noticed at school, because I, I teach Shannon Junior High, and I've noticed at school that there's a run on Jordans, Jordans being shoes, not like all the poor kids named Jordan, okay? They're not like trampling Jordans. Uh, but Jordan shoes, particularly Jordan 4s. Uh, and they're awesome shoes, don't get me wrong. I mean, Michael Jordan, great player, makes a great shoe. Uh, but there's been a run on Jordan 4s, seen a lot of them. And kids are like talking about selling them to each other and trading them, and I'm like, gross. Uh, but but there's a, there have been a lot of Jordan 4s, and kids are literally walking through the hallway like this because they don't want to crease them 
They don't want anybody to step on them. So literally, I had a kid the other day tell me, sorry, I was late, Mr. Pap. Uh, I was on my way back from gym, and I, I couldn't like, really walk up the steps easily because I, had, I couldn't crease my Jordans. I was like, oh, Sean. Uh, so I, I looked up. I'm like, why are these things so valid? Like, why are they not wanting to crease them or get them dirty? Well, Amazon told me that a pair of Jordan 4s, new pair of Jordan 4s, can go from anywhere between $150 and $550. So you have these junior hires walking around with probably $300 shoes trying to make sure that they don't get creased. They have assigned value, those shoes. They've assigned value because people are willing to pay that much for those shoes. Whether it be Amazon or shoe trade, whatever, it doesn't matter. Those shoes have assigned value. They only cost about $16 to make. I know, sorry, for those of you who are gagging, throwing up right now. Uh, yeah, Jordan 4s only cost about 16 bucks to make, but people are willing to spend up to $550 on them. God sees you as so much more than a pair of Jordan 4s. He spent his son's life on you. And I don't think we truly grasp the weight of that, except on like Good Friday when we're sitting listening. God gave up his son to pay for you because he knew that you were incapable of coming to be with him without that happening. He paid for you with his son's life. That's amazing. And we needed that. We knew that we needed that. And we knew that it happened. Romans 5, 8, um, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The life of Jesus paid for us. Do you believe that you're a masterpiece worthy of that? Because if you don't, then you're saying, God, you're wrong. I'm going to encourage you. Believe it. Live into it. The second thing we need to do is reflect God's greatness. Talking about those mirrors, as God's putting our mirrors back together and wiping all the mud away, we were created more for more than what the world is offering. We are worth more than Facebook likes, Instagram followers and mentions. We're more than what our friends think of us. We're more than what the jealous coworker has said about us. We're worth more than what our boss or our company assigns us that value. We're worth more than that. Front row up here, we are, you're worth more than the grade that the school has given you. You're worth more than all of that. Like the old guy at State Farm, Marty, who wasn't using his phone to the full capacity, you were made for more. You were made for greatness. And if you don't believe that, it means that you are saying that God is wrong. There's a catch here. Because you can't reflect God's greatness. Your life cannot reflect God's greatness if you continue to hide in the shadows of comfort. When I was in college, uh, my school was on semester systems. And I know some schools are on trimester. Uh, but two semesters, one in, the, one in the fall, one in the spring. And halfway through each semester, you'd come to midterm season. Midterm was just a giant test for professors to beat you down with to say, hey, all the stuff that I've taught you so far, let's put it in these like five or six pages of a test. And if you don't pass it, well, good luck taking this again next semester. Okay? So midterms were evil. And I learned this early on. What I didn't know, because again, high school finals and JUCO finals, like I, I'm a teacher, I get it. Okay? But Manuka and JJC finals were nothing in comparison to the U of I finals. So I was like, mm, I had the process down, uh, but 
but that U of I final smacked me in the mouth. I thought midterms were bad. Those finals just took the midterms and added about four, or like 12 weeks of stuff. So it was absolutely terrible. I stressed out big time. Sophomore year, I stayed up the entire week. Not because I was watching TV or going to do stuff, but because I was literally trying to soak up everything. There were classes that didn't give study guides. So you had to just read everything and try and figure out from your own messy notes, how the heck am I going to pass this? And so you'd spend half the time worrying, half the time studying, and then you'd show up for the test and be like, I don't know anything. It was terrible. It was horrible. Um, But even though it was terrible, even though it was horrible, you start to get a stride. You start to catch a stride when studying for finals. And and there was one year that um, I I decided these finals aren't going to be too bad. Uh, so every day this week, I'm going to try and de-stress. How do I de-stress? Playing sports. So I'd go, in, like, I'd go to Cersei, I'd go to ARC, one of the rec centers, and I'd play basketball for hours during finals week. Just to like, have that, that was my brain break time. So stop studying, go play basketball, go back to studying. Uh, one time I was super confident that all these finals were going to be easy, and then I got an email after my last final was over. I got an email Thursday afternoon. Finals technically end on Friday, but I get an email Thursday afternoon. I'm like, <sighs> I'm done. Hey class, just a reminder that your papers are due tomorrow by noon. And I was like, huh? (laughs) Paper? What? And I went back and looked at the syllabus. Yeah, somehow I had missed that we had this final paper that was due. So I spent the next 28 hours staying up all night writing as fast as I could, hoping that I didn't go into some dream delirious rant in the middle of it and hoping that I passed the class. I did not prepare well for those first finals. I did not prepare well, obviously, for that paper. Um, and I know that some of you know the stress of finals week. But those aren't real tests. Sorry, college kids. Sorry, high school kids. Sorry, junior high kids. Those tests aren't real tests. They're on physical paper or on a computer. They're, like, real. I'm not saying we live in some alternate reality. But they're not real tests. Real tests come in real life. And again, Not that junior high, high school, and college aren't real life. But what surrounds those classes, what surrounds work, what surrounds us in our everyday, that's real life. Our tests come from friends. They challenge us. They're going to see, are we loyal to them? And they might ask us to keep something hush-hush that we know we should probably tell someone about. They may come from our family. Are we going to be with them, supporting them, doing whatever we can? Even if it means compromising our morals, our families are going to test us that way. And sometimes, even though we don't want to think about it, God puts us to the test. He may take us to a place in our lives where we have to sacrifice something, to give up some comfort. It might be something that's super important to you, but it's taking you away from him, and he knows it. So he's going to put you to the test. These kinds of tests we can't expect. We can't, um, or we can't expect. We, We can't fully be ready all the time for when they're going to happen. There's no syllabus saying, test day, midterm, paper, real tests happen in real time. But remember this, a test from God can lead to a testimony for God. The idea that God tests his children is seen in scripture, and it's not something that we just make up as Christians. We don't just say, yep, oh, I'm going through a test from Jesus. No, it's in scripture. Time and time and time again. And I do want to make the distinction between testing and tempting. God will never tempt you to do wrong. God will never tempt you, but he will 
test you. This passage that we're going to look at in Genesis 22 looks at Abraham and a test that he went through. Now, Abraham, we could study any number, any number of Abraham's tests, some of which he failed miserably uh, before getting it all figured out. But in Genesis chapter 22, we learn about uh, a test that God is putting Abraham through regarding his son Isaac. Abraham had Isaac at a very old age, and he had been waiting for this son forever. It was like, this was like waiting, you know, day after your birthday, you didn't get what you wanted, and you hope for the next 50 years that you still get that one thing. It's like, uh, you know, the, the movie The Santa Claus, when that guy finally gets his weenie whistle? Uh, it's kind of like that, except way more significant, okay? Um, it, here's, here's how it starts. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, the one you love so much. So God is acknowledging, I know you love this son. I know that he's your whole life right now. But you're going to go to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Does it say that Abraham grumbled? Does it say that he complained? Does it say that he was scared? No. We don't have any scriptural evidence for that. What we do have scriptural evidence for is that he got up early and went. Again, Genesis 17, 15, Abraham finally gets this son that he had been waiting for, the son that came from God. And now God's saying, sacrifice to me. I gave him to you, now sacrifice him to me. God was testing Abraham's obedience in this moment. God tested Abraham to see, is Abraham actually going to do what I ask him to do? As we continue on in the story, uh, next morning, Abraham gets up early, he saddles up everything that he needs to, takes servants, and he's off uh, to the trip. Now, he doesn't have a lamb that would typically have been the sacrifice. Um, and so in this moment, as he's walking to where God is telling him to go, you have to be wondering what's going through his head. Oh, man. Like, he's the only one that knows that Isaac is about to be sacrificed. And he's walking with people, including Isaac. And you parents know going on long car rides is tough enough. Are we there yet? Where are we going? What's that? Imagine knowing that you're going to sacrifice your son and you can't tell him just yet. He has to be terrified. Verse 5 is when it starts to come all together. Because Isaac realizes there's no lamb. Is his dad? Yeah. We've got everything except the, the sacrifice. Where's it at? And Abraham responds, God will provide. God will provide one. Isaac realizes this, and he, you can only imagine what's going through his mind now. Like, what? This is unusual. Um, okay. What happens next is something that I personally would really struggle with. They arrive at the place where God told them to go. Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood, and then tied up his son Isaac, laid him on the altar, and Abraham picked up a knife to sacrifice his son. Huh. No questioning throughout this entire process. No doubt. No hesitation. Abraham was told to do something, and he did it. How did God provide? Well, at the moment that Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, an angel of the Lord called from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Yes? 
here I am. The same response that he had before he was told to sacrifice Isaac. And imagine yourself in this moment, like someone you love and you care for so deeply, someone that you've waited for, you're, you're literally about to sacrifice him and then you're stopped, like... <gasps> Abraham was about to kill his son because it's what God told him to do and God stopped him. Don't you lay a hand on that boy. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You would not have withheld from me even your son, your only son, had you. Abraham passed the test, the real test from God. He did a hard thing. Great people do hard things. God was testing Abraham's priorities. Was God going to, or was Abraham going to prioritize his son, that relationship and that love, or was he going to prioritize what God wanted, no matter what? And you see that Abraham passed that test, even though he had failed some before. So, there are times that we need to remember a test from God can lead to a testimony for God. Now, as a good teacher, I like to give my students study guides and walk them through it and, sh and share with them, here's what's going to be on the test. We don't, as I said earlier, we don't get that. We don't know what the test is going to be. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we can still be prepared. So I got some testing instructions. First, be prepared. Be prepared for the test. Be ready. The testing comes from God when we aren't expecting it, when you aren't ready. Even with, even with that being true, we can still be ready and prepared for the test. How do we be prepared for the, how do we prepare for the test? Read this book. Pray. Spend time in community with other true believers. Prepare your heart. Prepare your mind so that when the test comes, it's a breeze. Well, maybe it's not a breeze, but you can handle it. Second, be patient during the testing. Sometimes these tests, it's not a one one hour thing. Yep, we're start the timer and go. No, these tests could last years. These tests could last decades. You never know. But we need to be patient nonetheless. Take a deep breath and remember who God is in those moments. Those moments where you know you are being tested by God and you don't know what to do. Read off all the names that we have for God. Then, after you've stayed patient through the test and you've made it to the other side, be proclaiming. Proclaim the victory. Proclaim that you passed the test. Much like Abraham, you're going to remember what God did during the testing. But if you keep that to yourself, it's only good for you. We live in an age where you can share things online in an instant, and we do. We share what we eat. We share a stupid dance. We share a new haircut. We share that we got our nails did. Share that you passed the test, that God tested you, and that you made it through. Tell every person you see, proclaim God's greatness. Reflect God's greatness. Do something hard. That might be uncomfortable. Do something hard and be great like God designed you to be. Imagine how Abraham had to feel when he was able to tell other people, oh, wow, you'll never guess what just happened to me over the last couple of days. You see, you know that son that I've got? Oh, man, God wanted me to kill him and sacrifice him and set him on fire. And then, like, I was about to get him. I was about to, I was about to do it. And then, like, this angel of the Lord stopped me, and he was like, you passed the test, and now you don't have to do it. And, 
man, I just dropped to the floor and I started crying and Isaac had no idea what was going on. He still thinks that they need to find a lamb. Uh, so <laughs> it had to be amazing for Abraham to share that. Share. Share when you're going through the test. Share how God moves through the test because your test leads to a testimony for God. Before we end today, I want to turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. I'm a big baseball fan, as everybody knows. Not everybody gets into the Hall of Fame. If they did, it would be the Hall of Everyone. Okay? You have to meet certain criteria to reach the Hall of Fame. You have to be a, literally one of the greatest hitters, greatest pitchers of all time. And then people vote. They assign the value. Yes, this person had enough home runs, but oh, not enough RBIs. This person had enough strikeouts, but they didn't really get enough wins. The hall of faith is jam-packed with people that God has said, this person, by their faith, has been great. Now look at this list. This list is filled with people who have made gigantic mistakes in their lives. Abraham, impatient. Sarah, ditto. Moses didn't get to go to the promised land because of his sins. Rahab was a prostitute. David, we know the list of David. The list goes on and on. As you go through these great people. It's like going through the Baseball Hall of Fame list. Yeah, they were a great hitter, but man, I remember this one time they went 0-4, struck out all four times. That was a terrible, terrible day. Does that eliminate their greatness? No. Does that mean that they can't be a reflection of greatness? No. But if you go through Hebrews chapter 11, every single time that it talks about someone new, it says this, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed God. It was by faith, it was by faith, it was by faith, it was by faith. If these people are recognized as great, if these people are the people that we are supposed to aspire to be, that must mean they've done something pretty tough. Not everybody can get into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Not everybody can get into the Hall of Faith. But they're there for a reason. They were tested by God. They made it through the test by relying on him, by having true, unending faith in him. Living by faith is a hard thing to do. We were designed to be great. Great people do hard things. We are going to enter into our time of communion. And as we do, I want to encourage you to think about where does faith need to take a bigger portion of your life? Is it work? Is it family? Is it a relationship? Is it the way that you treat somebody? Is it your language? Is it, I, I don't know where you need to trust God more. I don't know where you need to be more open to being tested. I don't know where you're at. But know that I will be praying for you, as I hope you're praying for me. We need to help each other prepare for the test. We're designed to be great. And if great people do hard things, that means we're all going to be going through some pretty tough junk. If you're going through something like that today, I want to encourage you to, to share that. You can share it. Um, either through our prayer requests on the website, or you can stay after today. I'll be up here. If you need somebody to pray with you today, 
Come and talk. Um, but during this time, I want you to reflect. Reflect on where faith can take a bigger part of your life because you were designed to be great. The Savior of all designed you. He made you, and he made you to be great. He designed you with a plan in place. Live into the plan. Move out of comfort and move into hard things. Living in faith is hard, but great people do hard things. Sign up to be a Quest small group leader, if that's what that means. Sign up to be a part of something around here. Serve in any way you can. Live out the greatness that God has designed for you. Father, we pray today that we would be your image bearer, that we would be your mere broken, mud-covered, messy. Nonetheless, God, you have designed us to be great. Give us the courage, the confidence, and everything that we need to live into that, to be great for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day.